0: So as we stand, uh, let's go ahead and pray real quick. Father in heaven, thank you for your word this morning. Father, thank you for uh, the ability to uh, meet here this morning, Father, and and praise you, worship you. Uh, Lord, read your word and be together as a church family. Um, Lord, I personally am thankful to be here this morning, albeit short. Um, But Father, thank you for this congregation, the love for the Lord that they have. Father, I pray that you continue to uh, grow our hearts and our love for you and, and our love for, the, for your word, Lord. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be reading out of Mark 10 this morning, and I wanted to start in uh, Mark 10, verse 13. I think it's fitting uh, since the child dedication this morning. So let's, let's start there, verse 13 through 31. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept for my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. And come, follow me. Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God it is not. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord.
1: The passage that was just read, I want to suggest, is relevant to everyone in this room for at least two reasons. One of those reasons, I want to suggest, from a global perspective, is that everyone here is rich. Now, you probably didn't come here this morning, and in general, in life, you probably don't think of yourself as rich I'm not sure I've ever met anyone that thinks of themselves as rich. We have this tendency to look at those who make more than we do and who have more than we do, and they are rich and we are not, right? Most of us don't think of ourselves as rich, but I want to suggest from a global perspective uh, all of us here today uh, are rich. We are not uh, the richest in the world. The United Nations has a metric called the Human Development Index, and they looked at all the countries in the world, and they developed an index based on life expectancy, based on opportunity for education, and based on per capita income. We're not number one. You see who is. Uh, But we are up there. I'm just going to bounce through these really quickly here to give us a perspective of where we are uh, in this world. These are the top countries in the world according to the United Nations Human Development Index. And we fall in around number 10. I am intentionally starting this way to try and give us a perspective that we generally don't have. Now, income, individual income for a working person is just one component of this. Opportunity for education and a long life or health is another part of it. But we, if we just focus on the financial aspect here, this is a a rough figure. The average full-time person in the United States in a year makes about $41,520. If we jump down to the bottom of the list... Central African Republic, the average person there in a year working a full-time job makes approximately $400 in a year. So here's where I'm going with this perspective. Many of us tend to think because we have worked hard or we've gone to school or we've done such and such, we now have this particular wealth. I want to suggest a different perspective, that it is simply the providence of God that you and I were born and have lived here and not in the Central African Republic. People that were born there and have worked hard, like maybe you and I have in life, if that's your situation, they do not have what we have. So I am saying today's passage is relevant to everyone. We're going to go through this passage verse by verse in a moment. This passage is relevant to everyone in this room. There might be an exception here, but I want to say on a global scale, and our God is a global God, he's not an American God or a Central African American Republic God. He is the God of the universe. He is God of this planet. And I want to suggest that probably everyone in here on a global scale is rich. So this passage is exceedingly relevant to us for that reason. But very briefly, one other reason that this passage is relevant to us today, we're going to see Jesus doing something very specific with this rich man in today's passage, but there is also something more broad and something bigger that Jesus is doing. He is wanting to identify the reality that is common in our lives, that we often especially highly ethical people, we often have substitutes for God in our lives that we are completely unaware of. We have things in our lives that function like God, and on a deeper level, what this passage is about, in addition to dealing with wealth, this passage is dealing with us identifying what it is that we worship. Because highly ethical people on a level that they, they often do not have any self-awareness about, are actually worshiping something other than the God that they profess to worship. That is the situation in today's passage. That is the situation in many of our lives. It's graduation season. How many of you have been to graduations recently? Been to some? I know some were at parties yesterday. The commencement speech, the the. the Main criteria, the metric for judging commencement speeches is usually what? That it's over quickly, right? Like, let's get on with, especially if you've got a thousand names to go through or something, let's get on with it. But there are exceptions to that. There is a man named David Foster Wallace, and he was giving a commencement address back in 2005 at Kenyon College. And it not only impacted people massively when he spoke, but it was made into a short little book. How many, can you imagine those of you that went to graduation the last few weeks, whatever you heard being published and being a bestseller? In this graduation speech that became a book, he said this, he said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. So this passage, I want to say, is, all, is relevant to us because of wealth. And then this passage is also relevant to us because on a broader level, beyond wealth, this passage wants to speak into my life and your life for us to realize as highly ethical people, if we are like the man in this passage, that there may be some things that we aren't even aware of that we are actually worshiping. So with that introduction, let's turn to the passage. Hopefully you have your Bibles open. If you don't, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you and around you. You'll be able to stay with me a lot better if you've got a Bible open, if you need to move or pass one to somebody. We're in Mark chapter 10, and we're going to begin looking at verses 17 and 18. So Jesus has just, for those of you that weren't here last week, he has just stopped the disciples from hindering children to come to him, and he has identified these children who were the lowest rung of society, more or less, in the first century, as the examples of what it takes to get into the kingdom, that you would have childlike faith like them. So we go from that to verses 17 and 18. Let me read it. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? A couple things on this first verse. Notice, Uh, Jesus has, has moved from where he was and this man runs up to him and falls on his knees before him. This is not a Pharisee trying to trap Jesus. This is not someone trying to play gotcha, trying to trick him like we've seen throughout Mark's gospel. This man falls on his knees. He is showing respect and reverence and he calls Jesus good teacher or good rabbi. We have a discerning man here. He, is, he understands there are good rabbis and there are bad rabbis. And he has identified Jesus as a good one. And he shows him this respect. He falls on his knees. He calls him good teacher. And then he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice, I've got circled in my Bible, I do. Notice, what must I do? There is a works mentality, a merit mentality already right here in this question. There is debate in the first century in Jewish circles about what, what we have to do to be saved. How do we inherit the kingdom? Jesus has just described this using little children, but here this man wasn't there and he comes and says, What do I need to do? Move on. Let's move on to verse 18. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Look at Jesus' response. Jesus says, he often responds to questions with a question, and here he does that again. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Now, there, are, there is a lot of sophisticated things going on in this simple story, and this is maybe the first one of them. The man is using the word good in a different way than Jesus is using the word good. The man has called him good teacher in contrast to there are bad teachers. He's, he's saying this out of respect and honor for Jesus. But Jesus is, is taking the word good in order and using it in a different way to teach something. He is trying to show the man that there are in actuality no good teachers. In fact, there are no good human beings. We are all desperate and wayward and rebels. No one is good except God alone. So he's trying to identify, actually, the reader of Mark's gospel should see Jesus is God, and so he is good, but he's not good in the way that this man thought he was good. There's bad teachers and good teachers. You happen to be a good one, so I'm coming to you. No. We are all lost and desperate. No one is good. So the reality that no one is good except God, prepares for the truth that we're going to see in a few more verses that obedience to Torah cannot save. Obedience to the law cannot save you. This is what the debate is about in the first century, and and people ask the same question today. What do I actually need to do to be saved? And there's a whole variety of answers to that question, depending on theology within Christianity, outside of Christianity... What do I need to do? Jesus responds with this question and is driving home a much bigger point. Let's continue on. Are you with me this morning, church? Okay, so let's continue on verses 19 and 20. Jesus responds, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not Sorry, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now at this point, the careful reader should be scratching his head. Jesus has just said, it's not obedience to Torah, it's the simple faith of these children that gets you into the kingdom. This man has asked, what do I need to do? And now Jesus has just cited commandments. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Here's what you need to do. It seems that that's what Jesus is saying. And he cites the commandments. Don't commit, don't, don't murder. Got it. I've done that. I've not done that, rather. I've obeyed that commandment. I've not committed murder. You're following me, even though I'm not speaking right. You understand what I'm saying. Do not commit adultery. Check. I haven't committed adultery. Do not steal. Check. I haven't stolen. This is a highly ethical man going to a good rabbi saying, what do I need to do? Do not give false testimony. Notice what he's doing here. Those of you that know your commandments, you memorize these in catechism. or in, in, So he's quoting the sixth commandment. Then he quotes the seventh commandment, adultery. He quotes the eighth commandment, do not steal. He quotes the ninth commandment, do not give false testimony. He skips the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. He skips it and inserts something else, do not defraud. Then he goes back to commandment number five. Honor your father and mother. What is going on? It's an unusual citation of the commandments. To start in the middle, skip number ten, go back to number five. Jesus has strategically chosen questions that this highly ethical, rich man can say, I've done it. I've done those. I'm in. I've got it. Look at his response in verse 20. Teacher. Now notice, he's, he's dropped the good. He's listening. He doesn't know why he's dropped the good. He doesn't understand. But Jesus said, don't call me good. So he's, he's dropped that. This is an obedient Highly ethical man who has a lot of wealth. Teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. This is an honest, genuine, highly ethical man who's doubting whether he's going to go into the kingdom. But in light of these, I've I've done these. I've kept all these. I've got it. One commentator uh, writes this. He says in verse 19, uh, he does not say, keep the commandments to inherit eternal life. Jesus will, in fact, deny that keeping them brings eternal life. He's going to deny this in in a very creative and thoughtful way when he says in verse 21 to follow me. He doesn't say, keep the commandments and you will inherit eternal life. He cites these commandments. Jesus is operating on an entirely different level here. Notice the man says, uh, this was a faithful, genuine, God professing, Yahweh loving Jew. He knew his Torah. He says in verse 20, I have kept all these since I was a boy. In first century Judaism, and even today, what is referred to as the oral Torah or the Mishnah, says at 13 years and one day, his vows stand. A boy in the first century, a Jewish boy, becomes accountable to Torah at 13 years and one day. This boy knows, this this man knows that, and he is saying, since 13 years and one day, I have kept these laws, these commandments the ones that Jesus has strategically cited. Now, notice what isn't here. What, what should be screaming out at us, the person that knows their commandments, is commandment 10 isn't here. This is one of the main things to see in this passage, that Jesus has skipped the commandment that says, thou shall not covet. In our home, when we're teaching our kids the commandments, commandment number 10 is the give Gimme, gimme, gimme. I want that. I want this. It's a pretty universal experience. You don't have to have a kid to have the gimme's and to covet. I covet. You covet. This rich man covets. His heart has not obeyed the commandment. Jesus has deleted this commandment from his list and inserted something else in its place that the man could say yes to to emphasize that no one is good. We all covet. Even rich people covet. When I was first married, I was working, putting my wife through school. I worked at a car dealership, West Los Angeles. It was a Ford and Jeep store, and we had a rule. Those of you that know the car business or you spend any time in the Bay Area or Southern California, parking can be a very scarce thing. There was a rule. You don't park your own car on the lot, okay? So I, I didn't actually drive my car to the work. I, I walked or rode my bike. But this one particular day, uh, I'm not working, and I'm driving my Jeep. And I just pull right in on that lot, and I just park right in a spot where the used Jeeps were. So I pull my Jeep in. I think I was going to get my paycheck or something. And I pull in, and I, and I park there. I got a picture of my Jeep. I couldn't find a, a good one of it, but you guys want to see a picture of my Jeep? Of course you do. So look at this. So it's not a good picture of my Jeep, but that's my son Michael there trying to drive the thing. Um, th- but this is before this uh, photo was taken. I pull this, this old 1981 uh, CJ8 into this, Jeep dealership in West Los Angeles where I work. I'm not working. I'm running to get my paycheck. And I will never forget the general sales manager uh, tracking me down. And he says, and he was from London, and he had this accent. So I will never forget what he said to me. He's like, you get that thing off the lot. And I'm like, what's going on? Well, We had an absentee owner. He didn't... It was never at the place, but guess what? The owner of the dealership was there that day. And guess whose Jeep he's looking at? This is a millionaire guy, place in Malibu, owns all kinds of things, and he is checking out my Jeep, my 1981 CJ, I think, for his ranch, and my sales manager is having a fit that I parked on the parking lot. I am saying all this to say that all of us covet. We all covet. And Jesus has omitted that commandment for us, the reader of Mark's gospel, and for this man to see that he has not kept all the commandments since his youth. Jesus' unusual pattern of commandment citation highlights the self-seduction of highly ethical people. We can live as though we are worshiping God, but we are actually coveting or living for something else. That is the situation of the man in today's passage. We're through verse 20. Let's come back to our text here and pick it up in verse 21. I just love Jesus in verse 21. This is a man... Who is, who is self-seduced, who is unaware of the depth of his sin. He professes faith in God. He's highly ethical. And Jesus says in verse 21, he looks at him. Mark just summarizes it. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Loved him. This is the response. If we are like Christ that we are to have both to ourselves as sinners and to others as sinners, to love, to love sinners, to love confused people. People who look highly ethical and well-to-do, but are lost. Jesus loves him in verse 21. And so, Jesus speaks. One thing you lack. Go, sell everything you have, and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. One commentator writes this. He says, one thing is lacking. When Jesus says that, he does not mean that the man's past obediences need the addition of one more thing, but that the man is lacking in the one and only thing necessary. Jesus upsets the notion that keeping the commandments brings eternal life. There is a radical change in God's kingdom with the coming of Christ and with his coming death and resurrection. And Jesus is doing away with this false theology of merit-based commandment keeping, earning our way to the kingdom. Another commentator writes this, He says the specific form of the sacrifice Jesus demanded of this man is not to be regarded as a general prescription to be applied to all men. Now I have to say this carefully because the main thing that we should hear from today's passage is not this. This passage, as we continue on in it, is incredibly strong against rich people like us with lots of wealth. And that is the main thing that we should take away. But we shouldn't misunderstand this passage. This passage is not teaching that every follower of Christ has to sell every single thing they have and give that to the poor. This is what Jesus has called this man to. Jesus knows what the functional God or idol of this man is. And Jesus, I believe, is calling him literally to to sell it all. This is what repentance looks like for this man. To sell all of it and to give it to the poor and to join this small tribe of people I have that goes beyond the 12 and come follow me literally, stay with me, live with me, sleep with me, travel with me. This is what Jesus is saying to this man. Another commentator uh, says this. He says, material possessions can be a dangerous instrument for reinforcing self-sufficiency and independence from God. This is one of the main things we should take away from this passage, the danger of our stuff and our wealth and our lives of personal comfort. This is the main thing that we should take away. Not that he doesn't call every single Christian to do this. That is not the main thing that we should take away. The New Testament says, in case you're, is, is, is this really all in here? If you're like wondering, is this, if you're a Berean and you're wondering, does the scripture... T- teach what he's saying it it teaches here if we look at the book of Galatians it tells us what I'm saying that this passage is saying in other words for if a law had been given that was able to give life then righteousness would certainly be by the law but righteousness isn't by the law that's what Jesus is trying to say here in a fascinating and creative and masterfully interpersonal way Galatians 3 goes on, but the scripture has imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So what is going on in our passage here? Is Jesus is saying, repent and believe. He is saying, go sell everything that you have. That's the repent part. And then come follow me. Follow me. Believe in me. Jesus says yet to die and be raised again. So this is the gospel thus far in Jesus' ministry. Come and follow me. I am the way and the truth and life. Repent and believe. That's what he's saying in verse 21. Jesus loves people by calling them to repent of their sins and to follow him. This is what he's saying. Back to the passage. We're going to go a few more verses here. Uh, 22 through 25. You still talking with me? You awake? We need to do like a uh, stand-up or something? No. Okay. So back to 22 through 25. The man's response is a tragic one. Jesus loves him. Jesus has invited him to repent and believe. Because of Jesus' omniscience and his incredibly interpersonal interaction, he has specified what repentance looks like for this man. Verse 22, And this, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. The man is choosing his wealth over the invitation to repent, to sell everything he has, to give to the poor, and to follow Jesus. It's tragic what happens in verse 22. And Mark's point for the reader of the gospel is to make sure that this doesn't happen to you. Are you aware? Whether it's money and material possessions as your idol or is it something else that is actually functioning as your God. Everybody worships something. Something. Jesus has masterfully, strategically revealed to the reader what this man worships. What did he look like? He looked a lot like me. Wealthy, highly ethical, above reproach, checks off most of the commandments. That's what this guy looked like. But his heart Is far from Jesus and the kingdom. Verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is what should land on us today. We are rich. 2017 globally, you and I are rich. It is hard for us to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. He he just turns up the volume here. Verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. commentator writes this. He says, since a camel cannot go through a needle's eye, but it is easier for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. With humorously ironic hyperbole, the entrance of a rich person into the kingdom turns out to be not nearly impossible, not even fully impossible, but more than impossible. G- there's lots of comments on this particular verse. And h- how many of you are thinking right now of the various sermons you've heard about the camel going through the eye of a needle? There's all kinds. So I'm going to give you another one, perhaps, okay? So this is very simple, I think. Camels were the SUVs of the first century. I've got an SUV. We got any rich people with SUVs out there? Anybody? Raise your hands. We. Got, I got one. So... We're so rich, in the wintertime, when we go skiing, our huge SUV isn't big enough. So we got a box to put on top. And we fill it with skis and poles and boots and all that stuff. Right? Anybody else? Anybody else? Nobody else? No one. Okay. So I'm preaching to myself today. So, so here's what we do. When we put that box on top, we are limited in going through, say, Starbucks drive throughs Because now we're really tall. Okay? So in the first century, the SUVs were camels. And guess what? They loaded camels up with stuff for journeys. And they were sometimes on single-track trails. And they couldn't get through because they got so much stuff loaded up on their SUVs, on their camels, they can't get through. Jesus is taking an everyday experience from the first century, and he's saying he didn't, he's not using a single-track trail with bushes or rocks on the side that you can't get through because you've got your camel so loaded up to go to Squaw Valley, he is saying you, you're, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This is serious. This is serious. Wealth is a difficult-to-detect false god for highly ethical reasons. This is what he wants us to take home. I'm not going to leave you here, though. We've got a couple more verses. 26 and 27, we're going to be done. Verse 26. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? I think they're saying that because they have left everything, but I think likely they still have some stuff. And there is some suggestion that they may have gone back to fishing and other things. Peter's mother-in-law still has a house. It's where they've been meeting at base camp in Capernaum. And so I think they're thinking, well, we've left everything, but actually we haven't exactly left everything. So the disciples here, are, I think, are stepping into the same kind of mindset that the rich man is in. Who then can be saved? Here's the good news. Verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. The power of God and his gospel alone are sufficient to produce saving faith, even in rich White, American, SUV driving with box-on-top people like me. So I think the last thing I want to say, preaching to myself, since no one else has a big SUV with box-on-top, because I think the last thing I want to say today is You know, we want to, when we read a passage like this, we want to read it in context. We want Scripture to interpret Scripture. So one question I think is good for us to ask is do we see rich people following Jesus in the New Testament? We see one here who is not. And the answer is we do. Perhaps the one that comes to my mind, first and foremost, is Joseph of Arimathea. A rich man who loves Jesus But what is Joseph of Arimathea known for? What's he known for? Giving his tomb. Something only a rich person would have. He's not known for his SUV. He's not known for his fancy house. He's not known for his vacation home in Tahoe or at the beach. He is known for being generous with what he has. For rich Americans, God is saying to us today, we need to be known for being generous with what we have. We don't necessarily need to sell everything that we have and give it to the poor and show up at the church on Monday morning and say, now what? That's not the point here. The point is that we live our lives day in and day out, budget year and budget out, thinking about how we can be generous and advance God's kingdom with the wealth that he's given us. Because it is harder for a rich American to enter the kingdom than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, your word is convicting but we are thankful for it. Lord, we are especially thankful for grace. We are thankful that we do not need to worry about which commandments we have kept in order to achieve and merit our own salvation. So help us, Lord, to be like those little children that would just be... Uh, five-year-old children just picked up into your lap and that you would just love us and that we would have simple faith and that our confidence for entering the kingdom is, has nothing to do with the things that we have or the stuff that we've done, but simply by believing in Jesus, crucified and risen. Lord, many of us here today are rich. And we pray that we would be known like Joseph of Arimathea, not for our richness, but for our generosity. And that generosity wouldn't be a legalistic kind of generosity. It would be the grace of God working through us so that we are giving more and more of ourselves to advance your kingdom. Lord, we know this is where joy comes from, following your will and treasuring you above all things. We ask for your help.